Welcome to the Zero Stars Podcast, a podcast about video games and optional sleep. My name is Bob. I'm Matt. And we're going to talk about video games. So, we like to start these things with a news hour. The news hour? You, you, t- you kick off the news hour there, Tom Brokaw. Alright. Full hour of news. You know, it's, I, I've been thinking a lot. Uh, we watched a movie recently. It's called Mission to Mars. I've seen that movie recently, too. Oh, that's so weird, because we watched it together. Um, and uh, I remember really liking this movie as a child. And we just watched it, and I think we agreed this movie is terrible. But my memories of it, even today, four days removed from watching it, on the 4th of July, the most patriotic day for the most patriotic movie about America going to Mars, um, my memory is very positive of it. Well, that's what I was hesitant just now when you said a bad movie. <laughs> I wanted to go, well, you know, like... That is exactly how I feel about it. I wanted to defend it. I mean, it, this goes back to John um, Barron's uh, letter that he wrote us, the the listener mail that we read about nostalgia oh, and man, revisiting yeah. things. I was, I was thinking about this, actually, when we were watching the movie, and Barron's comment about, like, how whether it's okay to enjoy something for nostalgic qualities and I don't know whether I enjoyed watching that for nostalgic qualities I don't know whether I enjoyed I did enjoy watching it I had a great time and it's weird because there are terrible parts of that movie but once I get like when I see it I realize that and then I get some distance on it and I think there were actually a lot of really good parts of that movie. I, I think we should watch it again just to double check. I That's probably the only Wait, option. How did this tie into the news hour? Um, I don't honestly remember, but I just wanted to get that out there. And also, I thought it did when I started this conversation. Redging into the news 58 minutes. Oh, it's because so. I've been thinking a lot about space travel. And uh, there was an image that came out recently of Mike Pence just laying his hand... Yeah. On this, like, piece of NASA equipment that tells him not to touch it. And having just watched Mission to Mars, I was thinking about, like, the Apollo mission. And how it used to be that we had uh, politicians who gave speeches that were like, we choose to go to the moon in the same way that we choose to climb Everest. And now we have politicians who, like Charlie in the Chocolate Factory are told not to touch things, and just do. And now we have to clean the rotors at the top of the fizzy lifting drink building. Anyway. I heard that Mike Pence was responsible for the Challenger explosion. That's so weird, because I heard he was uh, responsible for the Endeavor explosion. Uh-huh. Wasn't that the other one that blew up? I don't, the Challenger was very sad. Really, every single tragedy, every tragedy in which yeah, astronauts, yeah. or anyone dies, dies, is very sad. Except in Mario. We can agree on that point. Um, so, I yeah, let's launch, launch into this news hour, because okay. I know that the, there's one thing that you're heated. Okay, so there's this article. Coming uh, in hot. Yes, I, I truly am, like a spaceship re-entering from Mars. <laughs> uh, so this article is in the New York Times, a noted fake news outlet. Um, <laughs> that we both subscribe to in an effort to support. Uh, to spread hashtag truth. Um, also been reading a lot about flat earth theories, but that's a totally separate issue. Not in the New York Times. Uh, not yet. <laughs> anyway. Until Mike Pence lays his hand <laughs> upon it. Um, 
Yeah, that was the, that was the craft that was going to prove it, and now he screwed it up for all of us. And humanity had another million years of winter when we didn't realize the Earth was flat. Anyway, uh, so this article is called "Why Some Men Don't Work." Colon, video games have gotten really good. They're uh, not wrong about one part of that. And so this article is based around this recently published. Uh, academic paper, and in it, these researchers, like, note these trends where, uh, young dudes, young men, um, are working less on average than older people, about 40 hours less a year, and 60% of that time, uh, that 40 hours, is going into video games, and these researchers attribute this to the fact that games are good now. <laughs> that, that like you, when you are being heckled by people playing Call of Duty, video games got good. <laughs> I think that... I find this interesting um, because I... I mean, obviously it's a New York Times piece covering a... Uh, covering an actual study. I can't remember the journal it appeared in. I went and looked for it, and it was cost $5 to, to view the study. I have also not read the study. <laughs> yeah. I did not, I did not pursue the study, but, I mean, I think that you and I both know a little bit of something about writing about studies and trying to get them to fit some sort of an engaging um, headline. Yeah. And one of the things that the New York Times consistently says in here is, I think that they use the, like, the word estimate, like the, the, the researchers estimate and they estimated how increase in video game time affected work how increases in video and game. it's an estimate is like the key word here because there's a big difference between what is it like the coincidence as opposed to like causality uh, yes yeah and correlation is not causality yeah correlation is not causality and this barely scratches correlation for me right and like it, it is, just it's comical that like that, like, this is, ah, one thing out of a million increased slightly, while another decreased slightly. <laughs> like, what is... I, it, they it must be connected. Yeah, I would be much more... In, maybe this is my own biases, but I'd be much more interested in actually reading, like, case studies. Like, individual people. Yeah. Because I think that there are certainly issues in which, like... Whether you call them, whether video games have gotten good or not, they have certainly become much easier to become addicted to, I guess you could say. Uh, yeah. Their feedback, feedback loops are much more refined. And beyond that, so often now that there are these multiplayer things, like, I mean, you think about something like Doom was a game that you could play. Uh, there was a way to play it against other people, but, like, you didn't really have the internet connectivity to do that. But eventually you killed all the demons and... Doom guy went home from Mars, and uh, then that was the end of the game. But now you have Call of Duty, and you can play Call of Duty forever, just against other people online. And they kind of make that point in this article, but there are other parts of it where, where for instance, here's here's like my favorite line in this entire piece. In the 1990s, games like Mario Brothers were little more than 8-bit virtual toys. Today. You and your closest buddies can go on quests in games like World of Warcraft that can last for days. A 13-year-old game. This is... This is... Today. They, and, they, and they... 
And they explain this as the quality of video games growing, quote, significantly. Uh, now, I think that World of Warcraft is a fine thing. I think that Mario is a better thing, but we could debate that. I, I think that this is a pretty typical, like, fallacy that I see just other people out in the world uh, also falling prey to, which is this idea that a long video game with the fanciest graphics is a better video game. Uh, when in fact, like, these are games, right? That's like half of the word, half of the phrase. Yeah. And, you know, they're very good games I can play with dice or cards, things that have existed for millennia. And, like, the way something looks is always subservient to mechanics in my mind. Incredibly. And I think that, like, what they're really getting at is the addictive quality of certain games. And I believe that they show, like, a picture of some people playing Dota or something. They do, yes. And they don't address that at all. And it looks like it might be in, like, a cyber cafe somewhere, maybe not even in the U.S. Um, but, like, the addiction, no matter what it is, comes down to, like, dopamine hits, right? Yeah. So when you have a really tight feedback loop like something like World of Warcraft does that makes you feel as though you're progressing meaningfully in some way, you become addicted to it. And certainly game addiction is a real thing. Yeah. But they're talking about length as opposed to... There's, like, dice has a pretty good feedback loop. Yeah, I can roll dice does, infinitely. Yeah, people become addicted to online poker for this reason. Yeah. And I actually... I would be much more curious to see it talk about, like, work hours as opposed to... Um, hours on social media or something like that. Because talk about Agreed. a refined feedback loop. What gives you like more like hits of satisfaction <laughs> on a regular basis than like Facebook or or Instagram or Twitter? Because that's a game in of itself, and this just seems ignorant of the entire concept of game. What a game is. Yeah, I agree with all of that. And then there's this weird part in here where. So they talked to Jane McGonigal, who is a video game scholar and game designer. Interesting. Have you read her book? I have not. Reality is Broken? It's an interesting book. Okay. Yeah. So I, I know nothing about Jane McGonigal, and I do not read this necessarily to be a slight to her, uh, because it's a quote and undoubtedly could have been taken out of context. I suspect that this was taken very out of context. But the, ar the article's kind of bent is that people are, like leaving the workforce to play games like that kid that dropped out of school to play guitar hero uh that's a callback to a news hour we did in the mid 2000s um but there's there's this quote from her and it says there is a routine and daily progress that does a good job at replacing traditional work uh, that i actually had wondered whether that was a line taken directly from the book but it sounds like they were in conversation with her but, I mean, at least Jane McGonigal is extraordinarily pro-introducing feedback loops into your life. Yeah. Introducing reward systems into your life to um, to become a more, uh, a better worker or to kind of, like, deal with mental health issues. That seems fully out of context to my mind. It's crazy. They and also so, have the correction in there in which they, they misattributed like her current profession. Yes. There's also she was a former game designer and she's a current game designer. Uh, there's also a typo here uh, where they should have said happiness and instead say happy. happy. But that's this is just a that's a freebie for the times. Um, I, I, so there's 
Yeah. The, the thing that I actually just want to close on here, because I think that we both think this is a dumb article, uh, based on a dumb study. Oh, I don't know. Like, it's hard to know enough about the study. The actual title of the study is Leisure Luxuries and the Labor Supply of Young Men, which also sounds like a weird novel title. Yeah. In a sense. Leisure Luxuries Jeez. is a It's so really, alliterative. It's a great name for a record. <laughs> uh, it's a... But it's, it's like, this focuses on video games, and I'm curious what other conclusions yeah. are, you know, what else do we come to in leisure luxuries? Because I would certainly consider social media a leisure luxury. That's a great point. And in, today, more than ever, a lot of these things intersect with work in interesting ways. Obviously, people make an immense amount of money streaming, and... Very true. And charities make an immense amount of money. Um, for those of you watching the Games Done Quick... yes. Uh, this week, there's been some cool ones that have raised like thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah, it's very it's impressive. Crazy. But yeah, so let's let's just close. Uh, they say this assumes that young Americans choose video games over work. So my question for you, Matt, as a young man, do you choose video games over work? Like, are you saying? Are you asking whether I play video games on the job? No, I'm asking kind of, do you think that you work less than you would in a world in which you did not have video games? Do you think that if you did not have video games, that time would instead be funneled into your 9-to-5 day job? That is certainly not true. No, but I do think that that's one of the... The thesis of the piece is so narrow... That when it when it is is literally just talking about like, it seems to imply that people are actively not interested in in labor in the workforce yeah. as opposed to like would I get a lot of other stuff done if I didn't play video games? Certainly, I would probably watch a lot more Criterion films. Um, <laughs> like, I would arguably produce more, but is that necessarily a good thing? Maybe not, because maybe I would have less to produce if I wasn't engaging with the games. It's such a, it's such a silly piece of shit article, and <laughs> it's just comically bad. Yeah. And I, you know, I say that as somebody who one time received a Wii U in the middle of a workday when I was working from home, and did play Mario for six hours of that workday. And I guess Mario being an outdated old game that's no good. But it did remove me from the workforce for six hours. So I guess that if I just did that enough times to add up to 40 hours, this article is 100% correct, and we're all going to die in the heat death of the universe. And nothing <laughs> matters. Well, we could always flee to Mars. I you know what? That's, that's a good idea. So I saw a movie about that recently. Did they flee? To Mars? Why were they going to Mars in the first place? Because, quote... To quote Kennedy, we choose to go to the moon, and then he compares it to Everest. So, what is that like Mars? The moon? Mars is like... Mars the, is the new moon. M yeah, no, it's the, the moon. The moon became it's Everest. Moon 2. Moon 2. Colon. Mars. <laughs> and then we just keep going out. Get on that, Duncan Jones. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm glad you liked that. I think, uh, yeah, I think that that's good. I, I would, my closing thought on this is that I actively tried to think of a way to play devil's advocate with you on this. I, like, really looked. I found no way of doing that. It was just a fool's errand. But 
listeners, if you guys happen to hunt down this article, we gave you the title, and you have thoughts on this, let us know. Yeah, because I would, I would like to have someone argue this point, because I feel like maybe I'm missing something, because like I want to respect the New York Times, I want to respect most most forms of like established media. Um, I believe man, in news. That read like that read like hashtag content, not like actual writing. Yeah, it's super clickbaity and weird, and I feel like honestly, why are we dignifying it with time? Because it made us angry. You're right. We're going to cut this news hour short. Yeah. You know <laughs> no what? No more news. <laughs> Let's move on. Moving on. To our main topic tonight. Uh, yeah, this is this is probably going to take up the brunt of the time. Oh, um, uh, yeah. Nearly all of it. We'll see. So, you and I both kind of like simultaneously, though on different platforms, yeah. um, played a game called Firewatch, developed by... Campo Santo. Yes. Published, I think published by Campo Santo? So well? they made it in co- in conjunction, and I, I can't tell if this was just for publishing, but with a, uh, Panic, which is a software company that okay. I know makes like Mac apps that used to make uh, actually, iOS apps. Because you played it on the Mac and I played it on the PS4, it might be that we actually have different That's, that's different interesting. Publishers. Yeah. Yeah, I can't remember what who was associated, but um, this was their first game. I believe. Yes. And this is people who worked on The Walking Dead. Yeah. And uh, also, they are loosely connected to people who worked on... Um, Gone Home. Gone Home. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, the Fulbright Company. The Steve Gaynor and... Well, they're all they're all Idle Thumbs. Yes. If you're folks. familiar with uh, a different podcast, which you probably haven't listened to in a while because this one's been taking up all your time. But, uh, so, a bunch of smart people who have made really cool stuff, and, uh, this is their latest thing. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of, do you want to give a quick summary of it? How would you yeah. summarize so, Firewatch? this is, um, and I think we're going to have spoilers in this. Oh, there are going to be spoilers. Alright, so, if you are, you know, you love us, but you love not hearing spoilers more, turn this off right now. And throw the iPod that you're listening to it on into a lake. Uh, because this is spoiler town. And we've got a one, Population. one-way ticket to Mars. It <laughs> didn't even make sense. Another spoiler. Tim Robbins will not make it. Yeah, he doesn't make it to Mars. He's on the mission, though. He's definitely on that mission. He is on that mission. Alright, so, so yeah, we're, this we're game, jumping right into spoilers. This is, this is a walking simulator, they would call it, right? Yeah, and I'm totally and fine with that. Well, I would say that what's funny is that there was this category of games called adventure games that were like these point-and-click sort of things, and you moved people around, and then you clicked on things, and it told you a story. And then at a certain point, those evolved into these walking simulator, quote-unquote, I'm doing air quotes, games, but everybody, like, they continued to make old-style adventure games, so then nobody really, like, treats that as an evolution, but it's very much just, like, at a certain point, Mario is 3D. Like, they're the same thing, but we just figured out a different way to do it. So this is a game where you walk around, it tells you a story, you are in the first person, you're in an environment, and you have a very good sense of, like, you're being a normal person in the environment. So, you're a guy, uh... 
the game opens up and you are told a story about his past, you get to make some light decisions in that, and that's all done through text. Yeah. Uh, you are picking different responses to things that are happening in this person's history. And then the game itself... Well, his name is, name is Henry. Yes. Yeah. goes by Hank. Hank. Well, no, he doesn't go by Hank. Sometimes he's called Hank. I think it doesn't... Well, we can get to this later, but yeah. I believe that Delilah tries calling him Hank, and he recoils initially. Hmm. There might be something to that, but I didn't yeah. pick up on it, if so. Interesting. Uh, so, the game itself opens when Henry uh, takes a position as a person who... I, I don't even know what the phrase would be. I, it's a, it's I guess a, it's a ranger? No, I think it's it's a fire... Uh, Watcher. Fire... Watch Trooper? Firewatch Trooper. Firewatch Trooper. Fire Warden. Yes, which is my favorite unit in Warhammer 40,000. So, he is a guy who sits in a tower in a national park and watches for fires. And it takes place in 88. So, Uh, that is uh, a year after I was born. Yeah, it's, it's very early on. I mean, it's clear that they're trying to avoid cell phones. For yeah. obvious reasons, which is I'm fine with. It also lends a kind of nice aesthetic. Oh, I think so. Um, so you you are basically a person who's in this isolated place. You've never done this job before. No, and there's a there's there's a known quantity that although the opening sort of like text element where you are choosing, you're running, you're kind of moving through a relationship yeah. uh, between Henry and his wife, and you make specific choices there that will to greater or lesser degrees, affect the rest of the game. Um, nothing extraordinarily drastic, uh, but it really serves to create an incredible sense of ownership over Henry, in a sense, um, of kind of like fusing your persona, I think. I agree. With Henry's. Um, so I Henry, guess we can just delve into what those decisions are. I don't even think that we need to do that so much as to say that, that Henry is takes this job because his wife um, has early-onset Alzheimer's, they're only in their late 30s, um, but she moves away to live with her parents, and he, sort of bereft and unable to deal with this, literally running away, seeks isolation as a uh, fire, fire, fire warden, troop. <laughs> as we're yeah, saying it. as a fire warden um, in, I can't remember where it was, it was like Wyoming or something along those lines. They live in Colorado, but it is it is not too far, but it's in the really in the middle of nowhere, and the yes. game just throws you into the middle of nowhere. Yep. It's an open map, which it is. I found to a degree open. Yeah. It's it's very interesting the way that this game is constrained, because it is in many, many ways a very on rails sort of experience. Yes. Uh and but so, you can pause those rails at any time to look around. Yeah. And the game encourages you to. It's a good-looking game. It is. It's really pretty. And so you're this guy in this park, and you establish a relationship with, like, your boss, who's this other fire warden uh, named Delilah. Correct? Yeah. Delilah. D. Yeah. D. Um, and she calls you, and she'll just be like, Oh, there's something going on over here. Yeah, you need entire, to go there. Your entire relationship is communicated by uh, a walkie-talkie. Yep. Something that I haven't I haven't held walkie-talkie since I was a kid. I was thinking about that. And like the tactile nature of it yes. is sort of interesting because the the walkie-talkie is a button. 
Yes. It's a button on your controller, and, um... So you pull the trigger, which is a very, like, squeezing the walkie-talkie yeah. kind of motion, which I think is probably the coolest thing that this game does. And I, I like this game quite a bit. I think it does a lot of really neat things. But probably my favorite part of the whole experience is just the first time that I realized, like, oh, I'm going to talk on this walkie-talkie, I'm just going to kind of clutch this thing, and, you know, it crackles in that way that you've experienced in your life, but not in a long time, and it still felt very much like, oh, I'm doing this thing that I haven't done in ages. Yeah, it's it's super satisfying. You, I, I momentarily became nostalgic, and I think video games like this work best when you become nostalgic for things you never actually even experienced. Yeah. Like being in the woods in the middle of nowhere. Um, yeah. I do think that the, like the, the the setting is is to a degree to avoid the what would become a narrative inconvenience in cell phones. Agreed. But it also also it just reminds me of being a kid in the same way that that Zelda often does, just that surrounded by wilderness. So that's yeah, like the basic structure of this in the opening parts of the game is that you'll get a call from Delilah, and you're getting to know her, uh, like through these conversations and she's extremely talky <laughs> and so she's calling you and she'll be like oh there are some people who are drinking down by this lake you need to go stop them from doing that or like they have a fire or something you need to go yeah lay down the law so she marks a, a spot on your map and this game uh does the far cry 2 thing of course where the map is a physical object in the game so if you hold up the map you can still move around and it's just a thing that your character is holding in front of his face i love it it's great yeah uh and so you just have a spot to go to and you can get there however you want um and so you're in this open wilderness and you're just wandering around learning the lay of the land um and finding your way to these story points that then kind of transpire or there's, like, a special thing that you're supposed to find there to kind of get another call from her to advance the story further. And it takes place over a series of days, so it'll pop up a big splash screen, and it starts out just day one, and then you go through the day. Beautiful color of yellow. Yeah. A, a very kind of, like, gold, gold yeah. yellow. And then you go through the day, and then it's, you know, the day ends, and it says day two, and you do something else that day. And so... At first, they're doing it in this way where you feel like you're kind of living full days, but then as the summer, because it's a summer job, as the summer goes on, time becomes kind of compressed, and so it'll jump, and it'll be like, you know, it's day 20, now it's day 77, that kind of stuff. Yeah, and the story advances in, sometimes in, in small steps, sometimes in leaps. Um, it is a very narratively propulsive game. I would say. Uh, and I, I don't think that we necessarily need to talk through the ending, but it will probably end up coming we, we up. We might get there. Yeah. My question for you is, I guess, you said, you've already said that you like it. Yes. I really, I really love it. I think it is, I, I think it is incredibly engaging. Um, I have a, I've, I tend to like walking simulators more than I ever expected to. I, I yeah. kind of, I, I thought Ether One was a piece of shit, but um, I really like Dear Esther. I really like Gone Home. Um, I really like uh, Everybody's Gone to the Rapture, which I know you were not, not a fan of. Very keen on. Yeah, uh, I, I really like that one quite a bit. So you were keen on Firewatch, but tell yes. me more about your feelings. So I really loved Gone Home. 
I thought it was incredible because I love just kind of going into this house and you have total freedom in the house and gone home. That's a similar game where you're a person who's returning to your childhood home and you as the player are learning things. There's like a dramatic irony where the character you're playing probably knows some of the stuff that you're learning as a player, which is kind of weird. But it's really fun because you're just wandering around a house. It's like reverse traumatic irony, actually, which yeah. I've never thought about. Before. It's kind of strange, right? It is very strange. It's, so it's cool. You're like digging through everything in a house, which is really fun and voyeuristic because, you know, you're like going through people's drawers yeah. uh, and learning a story along the way, which is really cool. Um, so I love that game. This game, I. I think that the parts of this game that you really like are the parts that I do not like, like, that I most dislike. Um, because my issues with this game, my issue with this game, is that it very frequently feels like this game is kind of pushing me to advance a story, and D is on the radio all the time. And I just want to wander around in the woods. Like, that's the part of it that I'm really enjoying. It's kind of, The part I'm enjoying is just kind of being a fire warden. Mm. <laughs> like, I just really enjoy the sort of, like, I'm doing a job part of it. And, like, I like the kind of weird role play elements of it. Because, like, when you wake up in the morning, you're just in your firewatch shed. Like, your little tower. Um, and there... There's at least one occasion where I realized that he had taken off his wedding ring, my character, to sleep, and I, like, put it back on. Oh, you took that as that he took it off to sleep. Or maybe he took it off because of he did wasn't you, into it, but I put it back on. Did you the picture frame? Oh, uh, no. The picture of, of him and his wife every day starts facing down. Really? And you can choose to pick it back up and place it. See, and I didn't notice that. But, like, I would, I would put on the wedding ring, yeah. and I got this Vietnam vet hat. Out of, yeah, out of a, like, a chest, too. essentially. And I would wear that. Which, you can't even see your character. So that's, like, completely meaningless. Other yeah. than the fact that you're just like, I'm off to do my work! And you're putting on your hat, and you're putting on your ring, and, like, I was playing him as relatively faithful to this I wife. did similar, yeah. And so, I kind of felt like I was inhabiting this person. I was doing a job. And then there's, like, this larger narrative that's very, like... Ooh, the mystery. Who's out in the woods? There's a guy tracking us. Oh, no. We're being listened to on our conversations. Like, all of this intrigue that I kind of didn't care about very much. Mm-hmm. I just kind of wanted to, like, do a good job and exist in this place. And they give you a disposable camera at one point. Yeah. And they let, they let you take photos. And you have a limited number of photos, and you don't know how long the game is, which is a really fun bit of tension, right? Because you want to make sure you get photos for what you don't know. Because you can't look at them, because you can't develop the photos uh, during the game. But you're... I just love, like, being out in the thing, just being like, wow, look at this Vista, because it's a gorgeous game. And then, you know, you snap a photo, and you're just like, ah, this has been a good day working in the Firewatch. Uh, And I really like that. I wish... I feel like when I play Gone Home, I am wandering around and at different points, simply by virtue of wandering around the story, I, I like engage with the story. Whereas I feel like Firewatch is a game that tells me to go someplace so that it can advance its story. And it gives me a lot of freedom getting there, but it's not like I stumbled upon the thing. 
there's a difference in in dispersal of information too. There are elements of Firewatch where you can find things out before necessarily you're meant to find them because you can explore anywhere at any given time. Yeah. Um, the game just heavily encourages you. It yes. never physically funnels you. Um, whereas Gone Home is very much a because the house moves in different directions and very little of it is gated. A certain amount of it is gated. A little bit. But um, yeah, that's a. Gone Home is designed in such a way that, like, you gather information gradually, and the full picture forms, but depending on how you gather the information, you you get, you fill in elements of that picture um, at different times, in different order. Firewatch doesn't lean into that. I mean, also, Gone Home has a silent protagonist, and Firewatch doesn't, which is huge. I am... It's it's very tempting to compare them, and I totally think it's worth comparing them. And yeah, I don't want to just turn this into like Gone Home versus. Fire yeah, Wars. certainly not. Um, it, it's so tempting, especially as you said. Like you know, there's there's a connection there um, between the people who made the game. There, these are clearly people who are advising one another. I'm pretty sure Steve Gaynor and the Fulbright team is like credit is a special thank you. I saw something. Steve Gaynor's name in the credits. They also, yeah, there's also, like, actual references to Gone Home. There's some sort of an Easter egg. I oh, can't even really? remember what it was. But there's some sort of, oh, it's the uh, the book that the dad writes in Gone Home, the JFK assassination novel, is one of the books. And when you start collecting books in Firewatch, which is something that you can do, yeah. there's a moment where I was like, I bet that that, that like, JFK book is going to be in That's here. That's so funny. And it was. And it was a nice touch. Um, it is. So it's very tempting to compare them. And I think that that's like definitely a fair comparison. I think that Firewatch is probably much more. When I think of Firewatch, it's like Firewatch is the game for people who wanted Bioshock Infinite to not have any combat. It is a very funneled experience overall, even though it doesn't physically gate you to anything. But it is it is linear. It's um, it's very much about. I mean, I found it propulsive in a similar way. I think that we both look back on Bioshock Infinite and agree that, like, this was not the great game of the time. It has kind of, like... Not, I don't think it's bad, but it's somewhat awkward combat. It doesn't feel nearly as smooth as I want it to. No. Um, the story makes a sort of sense in the way that maybe the movie Looper or <laughs> Interstellar makes sense. Um but it's not entirely satisfying. But I found Bioshock Infinite to be an incredibly propulsive game. I was engaged and thoroughly curious about everything that was going to come next. And I felt the same way about um, Firewatch. I'm surprised that neither, neither of us have called it Overwatch yet. Or maybe we have, <laughs> and we just haven't even noticed. We'll just find out. We're just on the edge. Yeah, we'll find that in editing. Um... I found Firewatch equally propulsive. There were many times, as with Bioshock Infinite, when I was kind of like, oh, that was a stumble. Or where yeah. I was like, was I particularly invested in like what the larger conspiracy was when they start to think that people are listening in on their conversations? Not hugely, but I certainly was curious. And it's so easy to keep moving along mm-hmm. that I kept moving along. Like, it is a very contained experience. And I think that that surprised me. I wasn't expecting something that, that pulled me along quite so. I mean, I think that the, one of the biggest critiques that people tend to levy at Firewatch is that it um, tries to cash a lot of checks. That it What's that phrase? It writes a lot of checks it cannot Can't cash. Can't cash. That's it. 
Um, it writes a lot of checks that it cannot cash. It is, uh, and I understand that critique, whereas I don't actually find that to be, to affect my, I mean, it ends up not being a story about, about conspiracies or, or espionage, and espionage isn't the right word, because there's but, no... yeah, like, it, it kind of, it faints in this direction that feels so crazy and conspiratorial that it, like, has to be a red herring. And so yes. then, when, and and then when they actually do pay it off, I will admit, I did not feel like, oh, wow, you really crushed it. Like, I didn't, I didn't leave it going, like, knocked it out of the park. Whereas, so here's the weird thing about it. What made this game satisfying to me in terms of a narrative arc is that, and here, we're about to get into the spoilers. Yeah, for, for real. It. When you boot this game up, the opening menu is this, like, fancy Firewatch tower, okay? Uh, I assume it's like that on the PS4. Yeah, it's beautifully rendered. Yeah, it looks great. But it doesn't look like your tower. And when I booted it up, I was like, I'm going to end up there. Like, no question. Once I saw my tower, you just, like, they, they like, seed it, and it's a beautiful mm-hmm. sunny day, and you're like, that is where I will go. And then at the end of the game, there's a fire that starts, and it's raging, and the whole forest is burning down, and you need to get evacuated. And the place they take you from is that other tower. Delilah's tower. Exactly. Yeah. Which you don't really realize that's what it is when you see it in the menu. But it's the first thing they show you is the last thing they show you. And, like, that was kind of enough art for me. Oh, I, Was yeah. this kind of just very satisfying, like, I see it as this perfect, beautiful blue sky, like, day when I start this thing. And then I am here. I live in this space. I get to know the entire lay of this land for a summer. And then the whole thing is getting burned apart. Everything that happened during this time is just kind of like a weird memory. And I end up there, and it doesn't look like I... It doesn't look like the time that I saw it before. And I thought that was like... Somehow, for me, that was like a very satisfying kind of loop. More it's, so... It's very poetic. That well, but, you only ever get to see it in this kind of bucolic sense yeah. on the main menu, and you never actually get to visit. You never see it like that. And as you, you also just never get to see Delilah in a similar way. So this brings me to my question for you about Firewatch, which yeah. is a more general question about games. Very early in Firewatch, I kind of had this realization that technically they were not able to render people in I terms think- of their faces. And so here's here's the thing. Uh, at one point I did have a glitch where my it froze and my head disconnected from my body. <laughs> Really, and I was able to like look inside of myself and stuff, which was oh, really that weird to me too. At one point, was it in front of that one chest going into the camp? It wasn't going into the camp, but it was in front of a chest. I was trying to pull out, so I was opening a chest when she when Delilah asked me a question. That's exactly what and happened. And so, to me. yeah, and I like I, I need to answer her, and it just like freaked out on me. Yeah, that entire area around that camp. I had to restart like three times because it would glitch out in oh, different no. in different weird ways. Uh, but so I kind of realized that this the tech that they were using couldn't do faces. Unity. Whatever it yeah. is. Doesn't matter. I mean I, I don't know enough about game programming to know that, but you can just kind of feel it. Yeah. And so this is not a problem well, this is not a 
thing that really happens in other media where you, I kind of realized early on, I was like, I'm never going to see it alive. There's a 0% chance because they cannot make her face move, right? I'm only yeah. going to ever experience other people over the radio in this game. And, or off in the distance, a silhouette. Or it was like a silhouetted entity. Yeah. And when I realized that, it was kind of like, okay, that constrains what this game is. Like, suddenly, I don't have these just, like, grandiose thoughts, because I'm just like, well, the tech can't do it. I mean, at one point, you find a corpse in this game, and its head is covered with rocks. Yeah. I think that they, so, can, I think they can render faces. I think that they made a conscious decision not to... Unity games have rendered faces before. It's not... I think that they made a conscious decision not to. Um, that's And that's reasonable, but I think I felt early on that that was a decision that they had made, and I felt like it... This isn't really about Firewatch. This is, like, general. It's mm-hmm. about the media. Like, the medium, I should say. But, like, within video games, I find that you can kind of sometimes see... It's like, oh, I'm bumping up against the edges of what they can do here. And because of that, I know that, like, where this can go is somewhat limited. It, and do you ever feel that when you play games? Um, well, th- that's a larger question. And yeah. I want to respond to the, your fire, to the thing about Firewatch first. I, uh, I think that they, they did it for, um, for three reasons. And I don't, I don't know this. I haven't heard anything on, on the Idle Thumbs podcast or from Steve Gaynor and Eric. My friend Steve Gaynor. Yeah, from Steve or Chris Steve, or uh, Nick or the other, the other guy. one. <laughs> um, Who I think actually had more to do with this game than any of the other ones. Except I think for he maybe, wrote it, yeah. Yeah, except for maybe Chris Remo, whose but, music uh, in this game is phenomenal. Fantastic music. The music is so good. So I assume that they did it, that they did it for three reasons. The first was uh, that it's fucking complicated to to render it's faces. Hard. It's a lot of work. Yes. The second is that I think that seeing faces that weren't rendered properly would just to a degree reduce the immersion. Yep. Like I don't know if you have played Life is Strange, but fuck, that game has some of the worst like like lip syncing. It is atrocious. And I, I actually choose not to look at the screen <laughs> when they are talking. And I look at it out of the corner of my eye because it's an otherwise pretty beautiful game and good yeah. use of color. Similar to Firewatch, excellent use of color. Very beautiful. But um, it's, it's awkward. I think that the third reason that they chose not to do it was because it'll actually it'll stand the test of time longer. So I think all of these things are true yeah. and I think that that is what I'm saying. Yeah. What I'm trying to get at is that they're, they know that the tech can't do it. So then well, they're creating a story that accepts the limitations of the tech. Exactly. And, and I so, like that. Okay. A lot. I, it doesn't... Do, do you think about that when you're playing it? Because I feel like... Oh, yeah. I mean, I think about that when I'm playing it the same way that I think about like the tech or mechanics engaged in any video game when I'm playing it. I think that the more important thing, though, is that I mean, you made the comment that like no other media really does that. But there's one media that... Does that all the time, and that's vi- and, uh, sorry, that's not video games. That's that's that's, that's uh, fiction and nonfiction and narratives, but especially fiction, because obviously in nonfiction you can just Google somebody. That fiction offers you absolutely no insight, sometimes, or like limited insight, and we get limited insight into what people look like. 
There's um, obviously there's a picture of Henry, but I think that 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 remove is extraordinarily important for for multiple reasons as well because I think psychologically you as the player um, by engaging with Delilah. Like we know, we never see a picture of Delilah. We see pictures of Henry. We see a picture of his wife. But Henry never gets to see Delilah. We, as a player, also never get to see Delilah. Yeah. And I think that that brings us closer to Henry again. So I think that like, I'm not talking about faces specifically. I want to make that clear. I'm just talking about the fact that if you are writing a story, on some level, you're constrained by when we're making these like highly narrative games, yeah, they start to kind of butt up against the edges of what is feasible to do in a video game. Or like by the same token, like, you know, there are edges on that map as open as it feels. Well, uh, I mean, yeah. yeah, I think that there's always going to be reminders where you're like, yeah, I'm playing a video game. Yeah. I guess, I guess maybe I didn't express this properly, but it's more just this idea that all of those things are true about faces and faces are just a good example of it. Mm-hmm. But what I'm saying is that I know there's no tension on like, will I ever get to see her? I never think that that's, and that's a tension that Henry as a character is experienced. He is experiencing Oh, okay. He's Every day, he's going to sleep in this thing, and he's like, she's right over that hill. Like, I might get the chance to see her at the end of the summer. And me as a player, I'm like, never going to happen. Zero percent chance. And I know that. Like, because I know that they can't do it. I think that, that we have that, though, in... I mean, first of all, I would just... I would say that I was not sure how... I was actually not 100% certain... Hmm. Because I thought that maybe the game was going to pull something. Um, especially towards the end when Delilah says she'll wait. I was like, I hope she doesn't wait <laughs> at the tower for you. Um, but I think that, like, there's also... there's This happens in, in narrative in, in narrative fiction as well, and written fiction, um, where... Talk about dramatic irony. You, as the reader, are aware of something that the character might not be aware of. Yeah. Um, and I think that that applies here. It never took me out of the narrative, though. Um, you know, it never took me out of the narrative. The things that tend to take me out of out of narratives um, are sort of like obvious cliches, of which there are a few bordering in this game. Not nearly so many as in a lot of games. No, no, no. But, um, you know, I'm willing to trade that also for the, the sequence when they're watching the fire burn at night yeah, and they're communicating and you have this conversation where the two of you have grown quite close and she's clearly talks to, to, to Henry and Hank a lot more than any of the other, the fire wardens or whatever they are. Says as much. She's, yeah, she says as much. I don't remember if she says it at that point or not, but it is, it is potent. It is like, if not literally sexy, it is metaphorically sexy. It is... There is so much, like, loaded temptation there. There's, there's a lot of tension. Friction. Yeah. There's, there's friction between the two of them. And I don't know that I've seen that kind of friction so palpable in a game before between two characters. Um, 
and granted, there's like there's a limited amount that you can do to push it. I assume. I don't know. I haven't gone back and really like gone for it with Delilah. But See, I don't want to. I don't either. Like it's it, this and is I one think of those that things. That's why I never want to play it again. And yeah. I thought it was great. Yeah. No, I I totally agree. There is a free roaming mode if you do want to go back and just walk oh, around. Oh, see, I kind of just want that to be the game. Yeah, Except that I, I want there to be fires that I can go and that you I can put as, out. No, I don't want to put them out because I can't. You I want to watch. I want to call them in. Okay. I want to. I want to then go like and be like, found a fire, and, and everybody goes. Give the coordinates. Yeah, and then and then I guess that maybe there's like some snappy back and forth. Yeah. That I get to pick things to say. See, I want. I I don't want the game necessarily to be anything other than it is because I think that like. It is exactly what it is, but I yeah want, I, I'm not saying this to like yeah play no no I know I I but I, I'm saying like I think that like that moment at night when you're watching the fire and she's in her tower and you're in yours and you can both see the fire and there's there's so much fire elsewhere you know like yeah. um that is that is that game at its finest and doing something that I have not really seen in games much at all and I found that to be enough to propel me through much of the the red herrings that were quite obviously red herrings. Yeah. Uh, the, because constantly, although you're engaging with the red herrings, you are also advancing the relatively simple story of Hank and Delilah. It's, which it's is, very simple. But it's very, very simple. Human, so it's, but it's, it's, they're, they're extraordinarily well-developed. They're un, both unpredictable characters insofar as that even though you're controlling Henry... I felt unpredictable in what I was going to say. Yes. I you was, know? And that's yes. and that's powerful. She's certainly unpredictable. She is a fully round like Ian Forrester definition rounded character. She surprises me consistently. Which is like Final Fantasy characters have like their wants and their needs, but they're never gonna surprise you. No. But Delilah is surprising and because she is surprising, because she is so round, she makes your interactions with her equally surprising. Not because she says something that's surprising and throws you off, but because you're actually not sure how you feel about her. Totally. Yeah, and I, I think that like we both clearly played it very faithful to the wife, and I played it very guilt-ridden, too. Yes, I felt bad as, as a lot of the Catholics, time. Yeah. I think this is not surprising, <laughs> um, or at least of the last lapsed Catholic uh, lineage. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I felt conflicted, and I think that like to elicit those feelings in me it's so different than telltale where you get like a either a a lose-lose decision in the walking dead or a lose-win decision or something along those lines those can be complicated and those can be morally interesting but nothing about um firewatch was interesting in a moral sense so much as it was just in a a they push and pull of two different people who have incredible chemistry sense well, and it's, like, super well voice acted, so, like, oh, that yeah. helps immensely, right? And it does a really good job. Like, there are very few instances, and this is, like, very common with voice acting, where you end up in situations where it feels really stitched together. Yeah. And it's, like, the tension is really high, and now, how are you today? Like, that kind of, like, weird, like... They do an excellent whipsaw. job. They totally avoid it. avoiding those. It's yeah. very impressive. But to your point, I feel like in, like, The Walking Dead, and in a lot of video games, uh... The character development is there, but not, for whatever reason, subtle enough to really support this sort of relationship. Mm -hmm. And so the decisions that are like, it's a tough decision because I have a gun and one of these people is going to die. 
And it's always like that kind of pick one of these options, your path will diverge because somebody will die. Like, that so often feels like what video games are about. Yeah. And I never once in this game thought anyone was going to die. I thought maybe I wouldn't get to the chopper at the end, but that seemed insane. Because I need... I've been taking all of these pictures, and I knew I had to get them developed. (laughs) So, like, I just figured there was no way that was going to happen. And so, you're never in a situation where somebody's going to die. You're just alone, so you're talking to somebody... And you're kind of trying to manage that relationship in a way that doesn't leave you being alone. Yes, that's an excellent way of putting it. You both, you go there, Hank as a character goes there because he craves isolation, but is also desperately afraid of being alone. And every interaction with Delilah is trying, is, is, a, is this mix of, you don't want to push too hard, but you also want to push just enough that you feel less lonely. Yeah. Um... I don't know if we can say much more than that. No. <laughs> it's I, great. It's it's great. I mean, I highly recommend it to anyone. Uh, pick it up at the next Steam sale or grab it on PS4. I mean, I I paid full price for it and I had no qualms because I'm glad I'm looking forward to their next thing. I think it'll be even more interesting. Um, yeah, fucking Firewatch. Great game. Great game. Very good game. Uh, and a ton of fun question mark i had fun like i I, really want to know i did have fun but like there is an element of it where like i said i felt kind of bad during a lot of it and i mean that positively because like i that was the intent i enjoy feeling bad during things i think this is why i seek out movies like mission to mars (laughs) um we really should have discussed Mission to Mars some, at some point in this being a podcast about video games and... Well, you know, it's so funny um, because to... this is the part of the show where we talk about media that we've recently enjoyed. That's something true. that we've enjoyed that's not a video game. And uh, it sounds like you like Mission to Mars quite a bit, but did you have something else that you wanted to share? Yeah, now we're done with Firewatch. We're fire. We're firewatched. We've our watches ended. I've watched. Yes, our watch has ended, and I. But it is great. I actually was not saving that up. I literally just came up with that right now. Just so you know, it's pretty good. Um, yeah, I am not going to talk about Mission to Mars. All right. Um, I'm going to talk about uh, a film by a director whose name I'm not even sure I can pronounce. But it's a it's a movie called Personal Shopper. Ah, yes. By uh, the director Olivier Assayes, I want to say. Maybe the S at the end of Assayes is, is silent. It's unclear. He's a French director. Um, he made a, another movie that I really loved called uh, The Clouds of Sils Maria um, several years ago. That's a phenomenal film with um, Juliette Binoche, uh, Kristen Stewart, and some other people whose names I can't necessarily pronounce or remember. Uh, so this is a follow-up film also with Kristen Stewart. And it was... I remember when they were developing this, I saw the title and I was like, all right, high fashion. I like the last one. I guess I'll watch this one too. Yeah. Then I found out that it was a ghost story, which is absolutely one of my favorite genres of all time. <laughs> um, man, this is a phenomenal ghost story insofar as that it is exactly like every other ghost story in its in its setup 
and just takes it. It just like it doesn't see like a trope that it doesn't want to like wink at and then walk in the other direction. Oh, that's cool. It is it is fantastic. It's beautifully shot. Um, it's consistently engaging and it never provides any answers, which I love. But it gives you more than enough. Uh, I mean, he's he's very like the the director and Kristen Stewart does a great job of conveying this. I think she's a tremendous actor, um, even though she's made some shitty, perhaps culturally inept. I don't even know. The Twilight movies are not great, except for the second one. New she, had, she had to get she had to get in. Like everybody, everybody has to yeah. you know get into the industry. There are worse ways. Tw- second Twilight is a very good movie. And um, her performance is not particularly great in those, though, because she has to be such a cipher yeah. for Mormon women. It's not great. Um, but in any case, she's, she's tremendous in these. She's incredibly understated. And considering the fact that the it's really just about her and her iPhone, she's mostly interacting with her iPhone over the course of the movie. To get very brief synopsis, it's about a, a, a young woman who works as a personal shopper. Um, and whose brother, her twin brother, has just died, died uh, of a heart attack because he has a heart defect, which she also has. Oh, very so good. So she and her brother had made um, a promise to each other that if you know one of them were to die, that the other would try and contact them from the afterlife. So she's actively trying to interact with her brother who's passed away, and strange things start happening. That's a setup. Um, really phenomenal movie. It's 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 much more interested in the kind of ambiguities of um, of certainly individual you know psychology of the characters, but also perception. Mm-hmm. Um, perception is huge in this, and that's something else that I'm really interested in. There's a a, a, a quote that I love about um, I'm probably going to completely butcher this, but this quote that I love about. Uh, Henry James's The Turn of the Screw, fantastic ghost story. Um, and it's about, that's about the governess who may or may not actually be seeing ghosts or maybe she's going crazy. And it's the, the idea that the phrase the governess sees the ghost is a true phrase. Whether, whether or not, this is, this, and this is, was setting conversation between some other fantastic writers talking about the story, but like whether or not the ghost is real is completely divorced from the logist, just the logic of the fact that the governess sees the ghost. Yeah. And this movie deals with that in a really fascinating way. And that gets to like the heart of what I love about ghost stories. It's not, I mean, there's some good scares, but it's less about, um, it's less about that, you know, it's less about the haunting than it is about the haunting. So anyway, highly recommend Personal Shopper. Uh, it's unfortunately not available on Netflix or Amazon right now, but you can rent it for a pretty nominal fee. Awesome. That sounds terrific, and I should look into that. You, uh, you should. You better. I will. Thank you. Probably. Yeah. We'll see. Uh, I don't know. Uh, so mine is actually cheating uh, because it has to do with video games, but um, Sports Illustrated just ran a piece, an oral history of NBA Jam, uh, and it is great, mainly because it really captures, and I feel like a lot of, when you read about the development of old arcade games, which I always enjoy because they're so totally different than what we have today, uh, as the New York Times would say, they were bad. 
No, that's not. Uh, I think NBA Jam is a great game. And um, so with that in mind, this is a really cool thing for anybody who's ever played NBA Jam, heated up, and gotten on fire. Mainly because it's just kind of a bunch of people talking about how kind of casual decisions that they made ended up making a good game. And then how that's never... Like, there's not a sequel to NBA Jam. There's Tournament Edition, which is a slight revision of the original. a sequel, you're right. So, this is weird because, like, Acclaim, through some nightmarish, like, copyright stuff, ended up owning the Jam IP. So then they went and made NBA Hangtime and then NBA Showtime, Hmm. which are, like, better than Jam, you know, technically. Kind of like Jelly. Yeah, like... I mean, I don't know. Actually, I've never fully understood the difference between jellies and jams. We'll talk about that off podcast. Okay. Next or, week, we'll check back in with the great jelly and jam debate of 2017. Uh, but it's this sort of thing where you realize that jam was like this singular event just because of a bunch of accidental decisions that were like, oh, it'd be really dumb if we like use this motion capture kit on a bunch of like, DePaul basketball players, and then filmed them, like, falling off of a table so he could make them do somersaults in the air and dunk on the sky. And it it talks about interesting things, like, how, when it came out, NBA Jam was grossing at, at least twice as much as anything else in the arcade. Like, it was a phenomenon. And, in part, that's because, you know, it had four players, and how, like... It's a lot of quarters. But beyond that, people would gather around the machine yeah. and stuff, and it would create this weird environment where everybody was around the machine watching people play NBA Jam and just getting excited. And then, of course, it has comical rubber banding in it, so no one ever feels like they're winning, yeah. which is critical. It's just a really neat thing. Uh, it's a great little story. I forget the actual title, but if you Google Sports Illustrated NBA Jam, I'm sure it will come up. Do you subscribe to Sports Illustrated? No, I just saw it online. Oh. So there's, uh, the what's, internet. What's this? Yeah, can you okay. run through this? Yeah. Do we have time? Um, in, okay. The Navy. <laughs> uh, the military industrial complex. Yeah. Then we come back, Mama said. It's just ARP, and that's and pornography. Like, ARP on that. And then, <laughs> it's Unix. Uh. <laughs> Unix. Uh, so, all right. Yeah, that's that actually. I mean, there's I, if there was an oral history of Final Fantasy VIII, I'd be more likely to read it. But I don't think Sports Illustrated is going to cover that anytime soon. They don't like to cover much, including women these days. Sports Illustrated uh, has a story running in this current issue, which I learned about because I was on the Sports Illustrated website somewhere I never go, and it's just called the Bodies, and it yeah. is just nude pictures. Of a wide range of oh, they athletes. Do, they do the body issue every year. Really? Yeah, it's really fucking cool. It's crazy. Like, if you have ever taken a life drawing class... Yes. You've got to check out the body issue. Totally. It is, like, the swimsuit issue is, like, obviously what everybody, like, still for some reason pays attention to. But the body issue is, like, it's like the Grecian Olympic. Yes, like, it is exactly like it's that. It's super cool. Like, like the muscle... Just beautiful people. And, like, they're not dehydrated. They're, like, actual bodies. They're not, like, Tyler Durden, like, ripped-looking because they are not dehydrated. And it's just, like... but Yeah, it's just, like, fascinating to see. It's super cool. Yeah, no, I I always that And so I I had never heard of this, but, uh, yeah, it was, like... 
it's just it is neat. That's actually a great point because it is just like people who are tremendously in shape, but who have not been. They're not there to show off. Like yeah. they are as much as anybody who is comically beautiful by virtue of being in tremendous shape is. But the the natural like the the muscle definition is natural as opposed to like hyper. It's functional it's not listening. Yeah, yeah, and it's just and it's also kind of cool because it'll be like. Oh, well, here's, like, what a football player looks like. Yeah. And it's, like, here's what a professional figure skater looks like. And just the different ways that their bodies are yeah. by virtue of what their bodies need to do is really cool. In the same way that if you put me next to them, you'd say, man, he looks well-suited for chairs. <laughs> but comfortable ergonomic ones. Yes, very ergonomic <laughs> chairs. Well, that's cool, dude. I'm glad the I'm glad you actually brought that up because I didn't realize that they had put out a new body issue. So yeah, I guess I we can actually make that my non-video game thing. Out. <laughs> the body um, issue. So great. I think that wraps this up. So next time, though, should we do a little teaser for next week? Because I know that you and I are returning to a series that is close to our hearts, and I think we'll leave it at that. At that. Thank All you right. for listening, and we'll see you next time. Bye bye.